the Bain Free Radio Hour. On this week's podcast, a wandering warrior signs on as security for a trade caravan and finds himself fighting to rescue a princess from enslavement in an underground kingdom. Plus, part 41 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're listening. I'm Bain Books contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, sitting in for editor Tony Daniel. Author John F. Murs joins us this week to discuss his brand new Bain novel, Slavers of the Savage Catacombs. This is John's second novel with Bain and continues the Shadow Warrior series he started in The Undead Hordes of Khan Ghul. John's novel features an itinerant hero and plenty of realistic martial arts action. We will also continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, the news. I thought it might be fun to do a few This Week in History items, starting with, in literary news, 410 years ago this week, on the 16th of January, 1605, the first edition of Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes was published in Madrid, Spain. In genre news this week, we have two film-related items. First, screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan's birthday was January 14th. Kasdan co-wrote The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Return of the Jedi, and has been confirmed as co-writer for the new Star Wars film coming out later this year. So happy birthday to Lawrence Kasdan. And Australian actor Rod Taylor, star of The Time Machine and The Birds, was born on the 11th of January in 1930. But he died just last week, four days shy of his 85th birthday. And that's it for This Week in History. In Bain news, our January mass market paperback releases are out. Tom Crapman's Come and Take Them, the fifth novel in the Carrera series. Reich Spohr's Spheres of Influence, the sequel to Grand Central Arena. And the Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs anthology, edited by Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia. You can find them at booksellers everywhere. Today we have John F. Murs with us, and John is the author of 30 novels, two of which comprise the Shadow Warrior series here with Bain Books. John is an Air Force veteran, a private security consultant, and a longtime student of the martial arts. In 2003, he became only the 1800th person in the world to undergo and pass the fifth-degree black belt test in the Bujinkan ninjutsu tradition. John has a deep love for Asian culture and holds a degree in Japanese and East Asian studies. And this, combined with his martial arts training, permeate his new novel, 
Slavers of the Savage Catacombs, which is out this month from Bain. John, thanks for being with us here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Gray. I'm really excited to be here. Now, besides the official-sounding introduction, uh, what can you tell us to give our listeners a little better insight into who John F. Murs really is? Ooh, let's see. You know, I'm just a man that, that happens to love life. Uh, you know, I, I get to play sort of these uh, whole lot of roles. I'm an author, a, a producer, a martial artist. Uh, I crossfit. Um, I get out and I do these crazy go-ruck challenges that are put on by uh, cadre that are in special forces. And they're sort of these 12 to 15-hour endurance events that are team building things and man i'm just i just like to get out there and challenge myself every single day you know whether it's lifting heavy weights or you know doing a go rock challenge or doing a spartan race or you know i just try to get out there and experience everything that life has to offer you know i've been i've been blessed with uh, with an amazing wife and i have these two incredible sons and you know, me getting up in the in the morning is, you know, hey, what's what's coming at us today? You know, to be able to to, to do what I love and write uh, write books and create whole worlds and try to populate them with some pretty intriguing and amazing characters, it, it just doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's me in a nutshell. I just uh, I've just sort of adopted. Uh, there's a motto. British uh, Special Forces Unit, uh, the Special Air Service, has uh, called Who Dares Wins. And I sort of took that and adopted it for my own sort of life philosophy as Who Dares Lives. You know, so I try to do something every day as Eleanor Roosevelt once, <laughs> you know, terrifies me or, or I'm uncomfortable with. And I try to get out of the box and get out there and try to wring as much from life as I possibly can. Um, if it's kind of crazy and not a whole lot of people are doing it, you'll probably find me out there doing it. So uh, that's that's me in a nutshell. You know, I, I just I like adventure. I like challenge. Well, speaking of challenge, you you've taken that on in terms of writing books in addition to all of these other activities. And the one we're here to talk about today, of course, is Slavers of the Savage Catacombs. Now, this novel picks up in the Shadow Warrior series where the undead hordes of Kongul left off. And that book came out in 2013, and, and this is your first time being on the podcast with us. So it is entirely possible that some new listener isn't familiar with the first book. So would you like to give them some background on the, the world of slavers of the savage catacombs sure um so it's set in sort of a, an other world so to speak so it's not earth uh, but it certainly has its uh, similarities to that the main character ron is uh, what's known as a shadow warrior and he's sort of an upstart he's not uh, he's not somebody that follows authority very well and has gotten himself into trouble here and there throughout his training at the uh, start of undead wards he's just graduated from the Shadow Warrior School and has been basically tasked with embarking on what's known as a shugyo, sort of a wandering quest, which uh, a lot of Japanese martial artists way back in, in feudal times would actually undergo. It was known as a musha shugyo, and they would leave their teachers for you know a certain amount of time, go out and put their skills to use in the real world, you know, get some real world experience and learning, and then sort of return at a later date and 
bounce things off of their teachers in terms of what their experiences have been. So Ron is is off on this shugyo, and his quest leads him aboard this vessel that is uh, headed towards uh, the island, well, not an island nation, but the nation of Igul, and he is shipwrecked with a, uh, a band of castaways who shortly find themselves imprisoned by an evil sorcerer named Kangul, who just happens to have an army of undead minions, and Ron has to figure out a way to free himself and his fellow castaways. And that is pretty much the summary of that book in a nutshell. Um, Ron winds up on this on this ship because he's, uh, he's chasing after a, a woman that he met, and, <laughs> and as, is, as is typical for Ron, uh, you know, he uh, doesn't. He's not really good at obeying the rules that are handed down to him by the elders at the Shadow Warrior Academy, and he sort of says, "Well, okay, I'll go off on this wandering quest." But the ulterior motive is to actually uh, is to find out where this princess is that he that he met at an earlier time and uh, and hook up with her. So, <laughs> as a result of that, he ends up uh, imprisoned by Kongul and uh, and has to fight his way out of that. Well, speaking of fighting his way out of things. The fight scenes in your novels, specifically the unarmed combat as well as the sword play, all come across as very realistic, and I have no doubt that that's because of your martial arts background. But more of a process question that I have is, in order to write these, these realistic action scenes, do you choreograph the fights and even possibly, uh, you know, act them out with sparring partners? <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a point, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, in Undead Hordes or Slavers or, or any of the other books that I've written where I would, I would come into the dojo on a Friday night, which is usually when my teacher, uh, Mark Davis at the Boston Martial Arts Center has, uh, the black belt training. And, uh, I would uh, I sort of unknowingly <laughs> ask a few people, to, uh, you know, if you had this and uh, maybe you had this sword here and came at me this way and I would sort of uh, try out some, some stuff on that and choreograph and see how they responded to it. And, and, yeah, there was definitely some choreography going on. In fact, it got to the point where, you know, I would come in on a Friday night and people would say, okay, so, you know, what book is <laughs> what book is this for? <laughs> what are we acting out now? Throwing all over the place. Right, exactly. Before I get thrown all over the place or have this horrible joint lock put on me, <laughs> which book will this be in? So yeah, there was, there's definitely that. As, as it's progressed, it's gotten a little bit easier for me to sort of mentally choreograph things and, and, and see. And certainly, you know, as you get more and more experienced in, in martial arts training, it's, you, you know a lot about how uh, an opponent's body is going to respond to, you know, getting hit in the stomach, for example. Is it high up in the stomach? Is he, or is it lower in the stomach? And that's going to cause him to bend over as opposed to sort of, you know, reel back. You know, that sort of, that sort of uh, authenticity is, is important for fight scenes. So, yeah. And it, it comes across very, very well. One of the things that I wondered about, too, is... It's pretty obvious that uh, your your shadow warriors and the martial arts system that you describe in the book uh, is based on your own studies and the the ninja tradition that most of us at least know the name and maybe know a little bit about. But I noticed that you never use the word ninja. And I didn't know if you had a particular reason for that, or is it just because this is, like you said, an an alternate world, another world? 
Yeah, I mean, that was something that uh, my editor, Jim Mintz, and I had discussed. And, you know, both of us felt that since this was going to be, you know, an, an other world sort of setting, that maybe it would be a good idea to, to stay away from that term. But yet there's also sort of an, an interesting side note to that in, in terms of, you know, what you were saying. You know, most people are familiar with the term ninja, and it sort of automatically conjures up this this image of a Hollywood movie and the guys dressed all in black doing all these sort of crazy Hollywood antics, uh, you know, real, real ninjutsu, you know, is, is not like that necessarily at all. And, you know, in fact, they were sort of the, the feudal uh, spies and special operators of, uh, of Japan. And uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so the terminology I came up with for ninja is I use a, uh, I use the term shinobuchin, which is almost an amalgamation of, uh, of two words from Japanese. And uh, shinobu, which literally means to steal in, is actually where the, the term ninja comes from. It's another way to sort of read that character when it's combined with another character. And then the bujin actually means divine warrior. And the ninjutsu lineage that I study is the, the bujinkan organization of uh, Masaki Hatsumi, so I simply sort of combine those two for the for the official term that we use for ninja in the book. But yeah, they're pretty much pretty much indistinguishable in terms of you know why don't we use ninja instead of you know shinobu jin? It was just sort of a way to to sort of separate that other world setting from uh, from the real world. Well, it comes across very cleanly to me, and and you have created these characters who who seem very realistic and who have uh, high ideals, you know, even though, as you said, you know, Ron has a tendency at times to, uh, to go his own way, uh, more so than perhaps his, his teachers might have liked. Um, <laughs> there's one part of the novel where, where they're getting ready for a battle, and one of uh, Ron's companions tells him, any warrior worth their weight is always ready to die. And that character goes on and acknowledges that, you know, even though they may not want to die, uh, you know, they, they need to be prepared for it. And he says, if we weren't, the gods would have chosen another life for us to lead. We're here for a reason. And if we die in the course of that, so be it. There can be no arguing with one's destiny. But in contrast to that, Ron says, no, he says he chooses his own destiny. And then he, he later recalls other lessons that his teachers taught him and, and says, you know, we have to be ready for whatever comes our way. And my question is, without, you know, going too deep into it and, and, and revealing too much of what happens, is this giving us some kind of, some insight into what we might call the John F. Murr's philosophy of life? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be writing a self-help book anytime soon or anything like that. You know, I, I, I'm not even sure I could encapsulate my, my life philosophy. You know, um, you know, Ron is, as I said, we, you know, he's an upstart. So he likes to think, as a lot of people do, as we even do, that we have a certain amount of control, you know, um, but fact, you know, at the end of the day, we might, we might have that control, uh, or that might just be an illusion of control. Um, 
you know, let me let me put it this way. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday after a funeral service, and she was struggling to make sense of death, as so many of us do. Um, you know, a whole lot of people tend to have the answers, but the fact is none of us do. We're all, you know, on this planet, this big chunk of rock going through space and time, and we're always curious about what might lie beyond, and we're all searching for answers where none really exist. Um, you know, religion, faith, belief system, whatever you want to call it, they don't necessarily give us answers. They give us, they give us hope. And that's often more important than, you know, knowing for sure one way or another. You know, hope lets you, it lets you dream. It gives you, hope gives you opportunities. You know, so back to the characters in the book. The warriors that, that I've had the good fortune to meet in my life have all been prepared for death. Um, you know, but their perspective is this wonderful paradox of sorts. You know, they have the highest regard for life, and yet they're extraordinarily well-versed in being able to deal out death. Um, they're prepared for anything, and, and that's sort of what I try to embrace as well. You know, this isn't to say that I have a bunker stylo filled with MREs for when the zombies come, but it's just, it's just the sort of general situational awareness in everyday life. I believe that a lot of people sort of go through life in a, as a state of blissful ignorance, and they miss an awful lot of the world because they're too busy checking their phone. Um, they miss seeing how everything is sort of interconnected. And so when, you know, Ron is saying, well, no, you know, I, I, I think I can control my own destiny, I think he's sort of displaying a little of of his, you know, uh, bravado and probably some naivete at, at the same time. Um, many of us sort of feel that in, in terms of, you know, I can, con- I can control my own destiny. And I think we can to a point, but you've always got to be prepared for that uncertainty factor. There are always variables that, uh, that we don't necessarily see coming. So we've got to try to be prepared as possible. You know, um, nothing ever goes right in combat. <laughs> nothing ever goes right. In a street fight, and it doesn't matter how many times you you try to choreograph it or plan it out in your head. Well, you know, if I was ever attacked this way with a knife, here's how I'd respond. Okay, but I forgot that we're in the middle of winter, and I just stepped on a patch of ice, and that whole plan that I had just went out the window because it fell on my ass. So it's it's sort of this combination of you know general preparedness, but yeah, at the same time, you know. You always got that variable that you got to look out for, and uh, that's—I think—that's really what I was trying to trying to achieve with with that passage, especially. Well, I think what you say there, in terms of you know hope, that gives us you know a a, a good futuristic outlook, um, is is not enough because you have to have preparation to go along with that, and in your case, sure. uh, you know you've prepared. Uh, by uh, by accepting the challenge of a lot of martial arts training. And on your website, uh, you even say that ninjutsu saved your life on numerous occasions. What What is that about? That's true. <laughs> well, um, let me see. Let me see if I can come up with Yeah, okay. Um, so I was walking through Boston's Chinatown, with my wife and her cousin one uh, bright sunny day and as we were walking down the sidewalk there was two guys sort of loitering ahead of us um with their backs to us and as we were walking closer and closer we were about you know i don't know uh, 10 yards away from them at this point i became aware of 
two more guys that were off to our left in sort of this semicircular pattern, and it just seemed odd. Um, so as we approached them, um, they both sort of separated, and one turned toward me and started pulling a knife out of his pocket while he was talking to me, saying, you know, is there a problem here? And rather than, you know, jump back and strike a pose and do all this crazy stuff, I simply sort of guided the arm that had the knife uh, away from me and my wife and her cousin while I said, nope, nope, there's, there's no problem here. We just kind of kept moving through this danger zone before it could have closed in on us. And there was no ego. I didn't let my ego, fortunately, that day get involved in it. Uh, otherwise, it could have turned a lot deadlier. But it's sort of, you know, if, if I hadn't studied ninjutsu and learned how to how to keep my ego in check and just sort of get through a very potentially deadly situation without a whole lot of, uh, you know, muck and fuss, then uh, I definitely could have ended far differently. You know, it was just just a matter of just doing a, a quick, easy move. You know, that was that was almost strange to the attacker himself uh, and just it allowed us to get those precious few seconds where we could move further down the sidewalk and then just get the hell out of there so um you know that's that's one one instance it was you know just a simple non-threatening response to you know a potentially deadly situation we went home safe and sound and that's what it's all about i imagine that part of the training that kicked in at that time also was simply the ability to be completely aware of your surroundings and the situation and to see a mode of escape that perhaps someone who had not had training uh, would be blind to because of whatever emotion was flooding them at that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, not to say that there was an emotion immediately after the event. We got back to the car and we all sort of sat there and just took a deep breath. I mean, you know, any any combat veteran will tell you that, that the butterflies never go away. You know, you're always scared. It always feels like you're being kicked. You know, where the sun don't shine. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, at that at that precise moment, it was it was definitely a result of of being aware enough to see what could be unfolding in front of us, you know, at any time. And again, if it had been a more conventional uh, fighting style and I hadn't been, you know, working on trying to my own ego and take that out of the equation, you know, who knows, I would have jumped back and struck a pose and then four guys would have been on top of me and, you know, and who's to say what could have happened to my wife and her cousin. So, yeah, I, I, it was uh, it was definitely the outcome that, that uh, that I trained for without really planning for it. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, one of the things that you just mentioned there in terms of the, the after effects, uh, some of us who have not been in combat but have been in other types of situations, like I remember from my days on the Disaster Response Force, after dealing with the fire or whatever the emergency was, the, the emotions that come in that you, you you sort of push away during the event and then the adrenaline wears off and everything comes in is one of the things that I thought you portrayed very well in the novel because Ron is not this superhero figure with boundless energy and always has the right answer. 
he has to deal with setbacks and he has to battle against fatigue and hunger and cold and all of these things. And I appreciated that very much, the way you put him in situations and had him work through them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that, that I guess if you had to say I was known for something in my books, that's, you, you've hit it right on the head there. I mean, I get a lot of, I get a lot of fan mail from, uh, operators and police officers and first responders who, who genuinely, you know, appreciate whether it's a fight scene or, or just a, a, an adrenaline action scene, appreciate that because it, it rings true to them. They've, they've lived that. <laughs> you know, they know exactly what that feels like. Uh, you know exactly what that feels like. So that's why that, that really, you know, that really felt like, yeah, okay, I got this, <laughs> you know. And um, I've read other action novels before where that's just, it's not even a factor in there. And unfortunately, more fortunately for the author, it's because they haven't experienced it. Um, so they can only put in, you know, perhaps what they've experienced or what they've researched. But uh, for those of us that have <laughs> that have that have been in those situations and, and felt like uh, stuff was coming out of you, every orifice that you had. Um, yeah, that's, so I always try to make sure that that's in there because I want that to be something that, that people understand about it, that there are no superheroes, that everybody has to adapt and overcome these challenges. There's just no, there's no easy way to do it. You just do it. <laughs> so. Well, and I appreciate that very much in, in your book. Speaking of experience versus research, I have a couple quick questions along those lines. One, sure. um, I thought that your your the descriptions, your scene setting uh, were all very realistic and matched sort of the the picture in my head of some of some places I had been and others that I have have seen in in movies and that kind of thing. Uh, but specifically, you know, the 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 hiking that they had to do to to get to where the bandits were and then the sights and the sounds of the city where where Ron uh, finds himself early in the novel, were, were all seemed very, very realistic. And so I wondered, uh, have you traveled a lot in Asia, and, and has that had an impact on your writing? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I have done a, a bit of travel in Asia, Japan and the Philippines especially. Um, you know, I don't, I don't go a whole bundle on, on doing pages and pages of descriptions because, you know, frankly, when I read that in a book, it kind of brings me to tears. I'm, I'm much more like, okay, you know, I, I get it. You know, he's in a city. Um, let's get to the action. That's, that's the kind of reader that I am just personally. So when I write, I try to, you know, I'll try to pick out a few key items that will really give the reader a good image. I guess you could say I'm a little bit more economical with descriptives, but the ones I, I use, I hope they do sort of double or triple the work. <laughs> so, well, that's um, what I noticed. I noticed that, that sure. you don't, you know, go into great depth and and at great length, but you have very specific salient details that made me feel as if I could imagine the place that that you were describing. Oh, great. I'm glad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've got some precious memories from from my travels. Uh, you know, my, my wife and I went to this you know resort in the Philippines that I thought it was Eden on Earth. But you know, in order to get there, we had to take a, a you know this, this twin 
turboprop plane, and we landed in uh, literally uh, uh, just a stretch of mud in the middle of the jungle with a windsock and basically a lean-to. And and we had to transfer to this riverboat that then transferred us to a bigger boat out on the ocean. You know, so memories like that are are sort of what I draw upon when it it comes to describing these things. I mean, it was literally like out of a blues video back in the 80s with Glenn Fry. Sort of, sort of thing going on, and uh, you know, I, I try to draw on that as much as possible, as opposed to uh, you know, just sort of pretending that I don't know <laughs> what I'm talking about. So, what's next for Ron? Uh, do we have more Shadow Warrior novels in the pipeline? Oh, definitely, definitely. After uh, at the end of, of Slavers, Ron. Uh, he's still got a job to do. He's still he's still got to investigate these rumors of an invasion coming from the north. So, um, giving away the end of slavers, he finds himself in uh, in an ancient temple, and uh, unfortunately for him, it is filled with all sorts of supernatural craziness. And it's the middle of winter, and it's freezing outside. So he's got no choice but to take refuge in this in this temple, and uh, he gets caught up in all these. Let's just call them shenanigans. Shenanigans. Shenanigans, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. It should be out next year. Um, you know, I grew up uh, sort of in the heyday of, of playing Dungeons and & Dragons, and uh, and so I, I draw a lot on that for this book, and, uh, and it's a blast. Uh, <laughs> I'm having a great time with it. Well, that sounds like it'll be fun. Supernatural craziness and shenanigans. And shenanigans. Yeah, I can't forget the shenanigans. <laughs> but beyond that, yeah, we, Jim and I have Jim and I have talked about uh, another uh, trilogy of, of books in the Shadow Warrior series. He's got uh, Ron's got a lot of stuff to do. He just doesn't realize he's going to do it yet. Okay. Now, how about you? What do you have to do? Do you have any uh, appearances coming up that you'd like to tell people about, or uh, how can folks keep up with John F. Murs? Best way is to go on up to my website, John Mers, uh, J-O-N-F-M-E-R-Z dot net, and sign up for my Who Dares Lives newsletter. It's totally free. And, uh, yeah, read my blog, pick up the books, uh, chime in over on Facebook at John F. Mers Fans, and say hello. I, I treasure my fans. You know, without, without my fans, I wouldn't have a job. So uh, I just I thank the world of them. And I do a lot of crazy giveaways throughout the throughout the year, so those are always fun. Um, but as far as appearances go, no, it's not lined up just yet. I've got, uh, I've got some guest blog entries coming up on, at a few places, but uh, those will be posted over on my website. And uh, just please go on up and pick up on Dead Hordes and Flavors of the Savage Gomes and get lost with Ron in a, in a pretty, fun, pretty fun setting. And uh, hopefully you, they all enjoyed it. Sounds great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, John, and uh, best of luck with the the supernatural craziness and shenanigans. <laughs> Thanks, Gray. I appreciate it. And now, part 41 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. Unless you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, in which case, get it at some point in the future. If you're not already an Audible subscriber, 
You can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. Or you can choose from more than 100,000 other titles. Though, why would you want to do that? We're talking about hard magic, and if you're just joining us, it's the 1930s in America, but it's a quite different America than our history books describe. In the 1860s, magical abilities manifested in a small number of people from all walks of life, and each generation since has seen more and more people develop magical talents. These people are called actives, and most actives use their powers for good, but not all of them. Jake Sullivan is an active known as a heavy because he can control the force of gravity, and he is very, very good at it. He's a former soldier, an ex-convict, and now a private eye who was recruited into a secret organization of actives. This organization, the Grim Noir Knights, are the good guys, and the rest of humanity needs their help because the evil forces of magic are about to unleash a magic-based apocalypse. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 41 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 17 It seemed like a good idea at the time. William M. Jardine, United States Secretary of Agriculture, after the Magical Weather Alteration Board backfired and resulted in record droughts across the Midwest, 1927. New York City, New York Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant awoke to grim news. One of his servants had roused him before dawn, jabbering on so excitedly that he'd been forced to pick up a lamp from his bedside and hurl it at the man to get him to slow down. The crash had startled his mistress awake. Mar Pacifica, he'd asked. Destroyed? Completely gone, his retainer had said, holding his handkerchief against the swelling lump on his forehead. Has there been any word from my family estate? Technically, it wasn't his anymore. His son had left it to his grandson in his will, and the willful, disobedient young man, who reminded Cornelius so much of himself at that age, would have nothing to do with him. No, the whole area was burned instantly. They say there are hundreds dead. It took him a moment to organize his thoughts around that. He could not possibly care less about hundreds dead when there was only one person that mattered in Mar Pacifica. He threw off the sheets. Egads, man, awake my staff, awake my guards. He'd lumbered out of his bedroom suite, screaming orders at his subordinates, temporarily forgetting his self-imposed quarantine. Get my healer, call the president. His staff had quadrupled in number since his encounter with Harkonnes, and he'd made all of them wear surgical masks. A sea of white masks watched him as he strode down the hall, ranting, still in his silk nightclothes. He'd risked his health, his good name, and his very life to curse the man that had brought division into his family. So soon after Pershing's death, could it be possible that it had all been for nothing? Could his once favorite heir be dead? This was not what he'd intended, not what he'd intended at all. He had to make haste for California. He had to see with his own eyes. 
It was a good thing that he had the world's fastest airship at his disposal. Fetch the Tempest! San Francisco, California. The pale horse stood on the flat hotel roof along with about two dozen others watching the smoke rise from the south. It was a tall enough building that it afforded him a good view of the blackened horizon. The sunrise was hazy and the sky to the east was the color of dark wine. Unbelievable, Isaiah muttered from his side. Believe it, Harkness answered with a heavy heart. Let this strengthen your resolve, old friend. He had met his associate the previous day at the air station. Isaiah had a valid reason for being in the area, and with Pershing dead, Harkness could not resist a visit himself. He had family in the area to call upon. The two had discussed their best options over a glass of wine late into the night. There was one final obstacle to overcome, but it was a decidedly difficult one, and one glass of wine had turned into several, and he'd retired exhausted far too late. Only a few hours later, a brilliant beam of light had pierced the curtains of his room. It had been so bright that at first he'd thought someone had discharged a pan of flash powder next to his closed eyes. It had awakened the entire city. And the dawn had brought this. A fog of ash hung over the land. Fire still burned in the distance. He could taste the smoke, and it filled his heart with a bitter regret. He had not intended it to be this way. What could it have been? A fellow traveler asked another. Perhaps a comet fell to earth, a stately older woman replied. I've read of such things. Balderdash, said a man with thick whiskers. It's an act of war. But who? Someone else sputtered. The Kaiser has come for his revenge, I tell you, the man shouted. There was very little panic. He'd come to marvel at how pragmatic Americans were. Harkness did not join in the conversations of the other hotel guests. He recognized the work of a peace ray and knew that there was only one within range. The sheer audacity of the operation impressed him. The fact that it had happened to destroy one of only twenty grim noir safe houses in the country narrowed down the list of culprits even further. He did not need to share his thoughts with Isaiah, since he could tell that the man was reading them anyway. He made no effort to disguise them. It was quicker that way. What now? Isaiah sent. We'll have to find another way to track down South Under. He was right. Timing was essential. For as impressive as the scorched hills were in the distance, the peace ray paled in comparison to the awesome destructive might of the geotel. Once the chairman had it in his grasp, there would be no hesitation. It would be used, and that would change everything. Harkness pulled something out of his coat pocket and held it up for Isaiah to see. The gold and black ring appeared dull in the red light. There is one way. South Under is too suspicious. That's why Pershing picked him. The pale horse nodded. South Under was a sly one, but he was also loyal to a fault. He'd had a falling out with the society, but he had a problem with their leadership, not their mission. He would always be faithful to that. He will answer the call. It's too risky, 
Isaiah shook his head. Spook him and we'll never find it. If that is the worst that happened, then we just have to wait for the chairman's cogs to reverse engineer the final piece. Isaiah gave a sardonic laugh. A few other guests scowled at him and someone muttered something about impertinent Negroes. He paid them no mind. He'd endured far worse in his life. I'd prefer not to die of old age in the time it'll take Unit 731 to decipher the genius of the greatest cog that's ever lived. Tesla may have been crazy, but that man sure could build some mighty things. Why are you suddenly so rash? It isn't like you. You are normally the patient one. Wait, Isaiah said aloud, reading deeper. You lost someone out there? Why didn't you say so? He clenched the grimoire ring in his bony fist. It was a small sacrifice to pay for our duty. It's a shame when you outlive your own descendants. I'm sorry. Harkness frowned. Damn you and your pity, let's finish the mission. Call for South Under. He will come. Very well, Isaiah said, turning to face him. We can... He grimaced, raising his hands to his head as if a terrible headache had come upon him. Harkness could see inside his friend's body. All the inner workings, blood moving, organs working, bone, pressure, even impulses of the nervous system. But he saw no reason for the pain, and knew that it came from Isaiah's power. That he could not see. Harkness took him by the sleeve and led him away from the crowd. What is it? He whispered. There is a place. It has been ringed with focal spells. They're calling for help. Pershing's knights, some of them are alive. Harkness looked back to the distant wastes and felt a flicker of hope. Mar Pacifica, California. Hey, can you hear me? It was pitch black, so completely dark that even her gray eyes couldn't see a thing. The air was wet. The ground was damp and slick and cold under her side. Hands were on her arm. Francis? Yes, it's me. Are you injured? Her head really hurt. When the blinding light had come down the stairs, she'd fallen. She couldn't remember much after that. Her hair felt sticky and there was a huge throbbing lump on the back of her head. I'm okay, I guess. She resisted the urge to sit up because she had a fear that she'd hit her face on something. It felt tight and scary in the dark. She checked her brain map and recoiled in shock. Other than a few separated spaces of air and salt water, everything else around them was solid rock as far as she could feel. The tunnel had collapsed behind them. They were in a tiny cave. Waves crashed right below. She backed out of her head, brought her knees up to her chest, and held them there as she rocked back and forth. She didn't like being somewhere she couldn't travel out of. There was a rustle in the dark as something heavy crawled toward her and Francis. How's the kid? Lance asked. Francis sounded relieved. I'm glad you're awake, Lance. Hearing his gruff voice made her feel better. The last she'd seen of Lance, he'd been falling from the ceiling. Fine, Faye answered. What happened? Hell if I know, he grunted. I'm in bad shape. 
feel like I went 20 rounds with Jack Johnson. Status, Francis? Browning is the worst. He was wearing one of those tight-woven silk vests he'd been working on so the bullet didn't go through, but I think a bunch of his ribs are broken. He's having a real hard time breathing. Doesn't Jane have any power left? Lance asked. Francis swallowed so hard that Faye could hear it. Jane's gone, Lance. Another voice came from Faye's other side. Maddie took her. It was Mr. Garrett. He sounded so sad that it broke Faye's heart. We've got to get her back. We will, Dan, we will. You injured? There was a long pause. I'll live. She couldn't see him in the dark, but there was something wrong with the way he sounded. Mr. Garrett was in a lot of pain, and she couldn't tell if it was his body or his heart that was more hurt. There was a thump from above. The stairs are blocked, Heinrich said. I tried to fade through the rocks, but I'd run out of power before I made it very far. They could have told him that. All the rock around them was making her real nervous. Where's Delilah? Over there, Lance said, moving in the dark, not realizing that it was so dark that it didn't matter. Sullivan's got her. Is she? Lance cut her off. Don't you mind her face, she'll be just fine, so don't you worry. He was a terrible liar. We need to figure out how to get out of here. Anybody got a damn light? Broken, Heinrich said. There was a tiny flicker of flame as he tumbled open a lighter. This is all I've got. It was so feeble that Faye could barely see Heinrich, let alone anything around him. There were some crates stashed down here with supplies, Francis said. But the roof caved in over them. Never a torch around when you need one, Lance muttered. I already used my ring. If there's anyone else in the society within range, they'll come, but I don't know how long that'll be. Command was supposed to be sending somebody to replace the general, and if we're lucky, they might already be in San Francisco, but they might not. If it was a full-power blast from the peace ray, then San Francisco's gone, Heinrich said. But I doubt that, since we're still alive. Ideas? We wait for low tide, and some of us swim for it, Heinrich said. We go for help to get the wounded out. I don't think Browning's got that long, Francis said. The water's still high. I can swim for it now. I'm a strong swimmer. And you'll drown or get smashed on a rock, Lance said. No. What is this place? Faye asked. It's been here forever. Everyone from pirates to bootleggers has used it over the years, Francis said. My father had Mexican booze brought in this way and sold it in the city. It wasn't like we needed the money, but I think he just liked the excitement. When the tide goes out, you can bring a little boat right to the rocks outside and wade up here. I can make it now, Lance, he pleaded. It's only partially submersed. There are plenty of spots to come up for air. I used to play down here as a kid. Faye went back to her head map. The way out to the ocean was filled with crashing water. There were no spots to come up for air. Either it was a lot tighter than Francis remembered, or he was lying, willing to risk almost certain death to try and get help for his injured friends. I don't know, Lance muttered, tempted to believe his young friend. Hang on, let me check on Browning first. 
If he's got time, we'll wait for low tide. If not, you can go for it and risk your fool neck. Faye noticed that he didn't mention needing to check on Delilah, and that filled her with dread. You did the best you could, Lance had told him softly. I'm sorry, I've got to check on the others. Sullivan held Delilah in his arms and rocked her back and forth. No, he finally said aloud, long after the grimoire had left his side. I failed her. He began to weep. When the light had come, he'd fallen along with the others. The energy of the peace ray had briefly snuffed out consciousness like a candle before a gust of wind. He'd come to... Not sure if seconds, minutes, or hours had passed and found Delilah at his side, one arm thrown over her protectively. Her breathing had grown much weaker. In the pitch black, it was impossible to check her wound. Her skin was clammy and cold to the touch. He'd left a pack of matches in his room and cursed himself for not picking them up when he'd grabbed his guns. The grim noir had begun to stir and he'd screamed for help, for a light, for anything. The German had joined him first and produced a small cigarette lighter. The flickering light had revealed a grisly wound. The ninja had opened her up from belly button to pelvis and her insides were exposed like a tangle of purple snakes. They were kneeling in a puddle of blood. He'd pulled the trench knife from his belt. There was no time. What are you doing? Heinrich had hissed. I need your coat, he'd answered. The German had been splattered with the greater summons blood oil. The light vanished for a moment as Heinrich complied without question. Lance had joined them a moment later, realizing immediately that he was attempting the same thing that he and Browning had tried to save Sullivan's life. Sullivan had been meticulous as he'd cut perfectly straight lines into her abdomen. The design was perfect. The healing spell a copy of the one on his own chest a proximity to the geometric thing that was the living power, and then he'd burned the second triangle over it with the smoking oil from Heinrich's coat. Then they'd waited. Nothing had happened. Heinrich left to check on the others. Lance had a box of matches and struck one to replace the light. He burned it down until it hurt his fingers, and then he did another, and another. Finally they sat there in the shadows, it was there in the dark that her breathing had become weaker and weaker until it sounded like a bare snore. Now Sullivan was alone, holding Delilah tight against him. While his mark was burning, repairing his body, hers was as cold as the cooling space inside her chest. Why? Why didn't it work? He had done everything right, but his magic was weak. He was useless. He knew more about magic than almost anyone else in the world, but even then he was blind, stupid, a helpless child playing a man's game. He'd actually seen the power, not as some nebulous idea, but as a creature that lived and fed through them, but he didn't understand it, and his failure was going to end the life of the only woman he'd ever had feelings for. Please, baby, please hang on, he whispered, if you can hear me. You need to touch the power. I drew the spell for you. It'll start fixing you. Come on, reach for it. Please, please, you can do it. Not like this. I need you. I love you. 
Delilah stopped breathing. And just like that, it was over. A dam of rage broke loose inside of him. Sullivan lifted his face and screamed at the darkness. The sound that came out of Mr. Sullivan was so terrible that Fay cringed, half expecting the rest of the cave to collapse around them, and she knew that Delilah was gone. His voice finally broke after what seemed like forever. The sound tapered off to a hoarse wheeze and then nothing. Delilah had always liked the sunshine so much. It didn't seem fair to die in the dark, in a wet hole far underground. She crawled toward Mr. Sullivan, but a hand fell on her shoulder. Leave him be, Faye, Lance said gently. You lied. You said she'd be fine, Faye shouted. Yes, I did, he responded sadly. What about Mr. Browning? Is he going to be fine, too? And what's wrong with Mr. Garrett? Is he going to live like you said Delilah would? Lance sighed. Quiet down, girl. You want the truth. John hasn't long unless we get him to a healer or a real hospital. Dan's hurt bad, but I don't think the bullet that went through him is the worst of it. You go over there to Sullivan and he'll take your head off right now. How do you know that? She spat. Because I've been where he is before is why. That burned house where we met? That was my house, Faye. The last time the Imperium found us, I lost my wife and I lost my baby daughter. She thought back to the charred timbers and the feeling of sadness in those ruins. I didn't know. How could you? Listen, Faye, that's the life of a night of the Grim Noir. It's pain and loss and suffering, but we keep on going no matter what. Your grandpa understood that. We're a dying breed. There's fewer of us every day and nobody in control seems to care and there's going to be even fewer if we don't get John and Dan some help soon. She could hear Mr. Sullivan sobbing, and it seemed extra sad to hear somebody that strong break. What are you going to do? she asked. Francis seems to think he can make it. If he goes now, he could maybe get a boat back here by the time the water goes down and we can get everyone out. Or I can send a young man to drown in a futile gesture to save an old man's life. John's got a few hours in him, but that's it. I hate being in charge, but I'm the senior man, so I get to make that call. Don't kill Francis. He's nice. Can't you get a bird or a fish or something? Too much rock. My power can't see through it. Mine either, Faye muttered. I could travel up top in seconds. It isn't that far, but farther than I can feel, so I'd probably die. If only I was like Heinrich and could walk through walls, then I wouldn't have to worry about getting stuck. Hmm, Lance said. That gives me an idea. Heinrich. He crouched next to them a second later. Yeah, what do you need? Can you fade with another person? I mean, can you take another body through solid objects with you? He was quiet for a moment. I have done this before. It is very draining. I can only do it briefly, but it is just like taking the clothes on my back or a firearm. But the more mess I have to fade, the faster it uses up my power. If I run out while embedded in something, well, I've seen it happen to others. The matter becomes fused together. It is not pretty. She understood what Lance was thinking. 
I can travel with more than one person? Faye clapped her hands with glee. She wasn't exactly an expert at it, since she'd done it exactly once, and that had been in a moment of panic. If I was all... Fady, I wouldn't be worried about getting stuck in something when I travel. I could go further than I could see and not die. What do you think? Lance asked Heinrich. It makes sense, he answered. What's the worst that could happen? Lance grunted. Besides getting stuck together into a big lump of meat or maybe somehow screwing up and getting embedded in solid rock, I don't know, Lance said. So it's either drown Francis, let John suffocate in his own blood, or kill the two of you. I gotta do the math here. It was a stupid idea. Forget it. There was a flicker as Heinrich thumbed his lighter. He held it close to her face. He was looking into her eyes, studying her. Can you do this thing, Faye? You didn't trust me before. Do you trust me now? He shrugged. There are easier ways to betray someone than a suicide trip through a cliff, he grinned. Poor Lance, trying to be responsible with such impulsive young people under his command. How much time will you need? No, Lance interrupted. John wouldn't want you to do this. I can go super fast. I can probably do it in two, maybe three hops. So... Figure five or six seconds? I am good for double that, Heinrich said. You do not appear to weigh much. He closed the lighter and then took her hands in his. Please try not to kill us and do not let go. No way. Too dangerous. That's an order, damn it. Lance, don't be such a wet blanket. She would have to push extra hard. When she'd traveled with Francis, she'd gone a much shorter distance than she'd expected for the amount of push she'd given it. It was terrifying to think about traveling into the unknown. Ready? Faye asked, but there was no need as her body suddenly felt very tingly. It was like she was made out of fog. With a shock, she realized she was sinking into the floor. It tickled. Faye grabbed her power more than she ever had before and was surprised how much there seemed to be there just waiting for her to use. Stop. Lance had begun to bellow, but then everything around her and Heinrich was solid, like being buried in the ground. Only they weren't in the ground. The ground was in them. It was like her body was made of little tiny bits, and Heinrich had spread those bits out wider, and the tiny bits that made up the ground were passing in between her bits. There was no air, no light. They were stuck in the cliff. Panic hit her like a club, and she nearly let go of Heinrich and killed them both. Go! Her head map was useless, and she grabbed all that extra power that she'd always been afraid to mess with and hurled them both straight up. Too far! She shrieked as they appeared in the sky, tumbling through the air, suddenly falling. The light was blinding, and she blinked as they spun. Heinrich released his power, and she could feel that he was holding onto her hands so hard that she thought the bones would break. He was screaming something, but the wind was rushing by too fast, and all she could hear was it beating her ears. She could barely see from all the sudden sunlight and the wind making her eyes water, but the ground was way down there. The earth curved in the distance, and green and brown and blue, and there was a charred black half-circle directly below that terminated against the ocean. Have to get to ground. When she came out the other side of a travel, 
She was always going the same speed as she was going before, and she didn't want to hit the ground and explode like an egg that had fallen out of a bird's nest. Her hair hit her in the face as she focused, and there. She was staring up into the blue sky, Heinrich above her, his eyes impossibly wide, his mouth in a perfect O as he screamed. The rotation continued and the ground spun up to meet them, too fast. She felt Heinrich's power shimmer down her arms. His body went gray and blurry and she sure hoped she looked the same. She squeezed her eyes shut as they impacted the ground, but there was no splat, no explosion of guts all over the place and opened her eyes to blackness as they sunk through dirt. She felt like they were gradually slowing, like they were sinking through thick water. The head map didn't let her down this time. Clear. They were right beneath the surface, descending gradually, and she traveled just as Heinrich's power gave out. They flopped into a pile of hot ash and crackling branches. The map showed that the world immediately around them had been scoured clean of life. Tree trunks were laid sideways, all of them cleanly pushed down by a single wave. Fires were still burning on the hillsides. Everything was black and nearly as scary as the place with the big magic jellyfish. Heinrich groaned as he gradually let go of her hands. Never, never, ever, never again will I do anything like that ever again, he said, sitting up, coughing as he inhaled a lungful of smoke. Never! He made it to his feet, managing a few steps before stumbling off balance and landing on his butt in a puff of soot. Never. In the middle of the wasteland, Faye began to giggle. That was part 41 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that concludes our podcast for today. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to John F. Murs, author of Slavers of the Savage Catacombs, new this month from Bain Books and available at booksellers everywhere. I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. Visit Bain.com for new releases and other information about your favorite authors. And join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.